um, renowned atheist Richard Dawkins has said, famously said this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. What do you say to that? What do, you, what do you do with those kinds of accusations about the God of the Old Testament? I would say, in response to Richard Dawkins, I don't think he likes the God of the Old Testament very much. Um, I don't think he's read the Old Testament very much, at least not very fairly or very carefully. I would say, I hope he's using hyperbole, because if he's not, then this is the result of the most pejorative, selective, superficial reading of the Old Testament that I've ever seen, which is using a little hyperbole back at you, Richard, right? Um, but, you know, honestly, I'm not really that concerned about Richard Dawkins' accusations this morning as I am uh, helping us answer a friend's honest questions because... Um, Passages like this one in Deuteronomy raise these kinds of questions. Deuteronomy chapter 20. In the cities of these peoples that the Lord is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to you could, there you go, let me finish that one. According to all that their abominable practice that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord, your God. Um, honest questions about these kinds of instructions. About the battles that we're looking at in the book of Joshua. Um, places like Jericho and A. Um, how do you answer your friend when they ask you, what about the Canaanites? And um, there are two helpful, short, they're helpful and they're short articles on our leader blog about this issue. These are the, probably the two articles that have been most helpful for me um, in thinking about these matters. And you should give them a look uh, today. Just a few minutes will help you think biblically about these kinds of questions. But today, when your friend asks you what about the Canaanites, one interesting way to respond would be, what about the Gibeonites? Um, because that's who we're going to meet in Joshua chapter 9 today. If you'll open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, um, let me pray for our time there. Father, again, we ask for mercy. And again, we trust that you'll be faithful. That you would take this ancient word, make it, your word for us today in a way that we understand and can practice and trust. So uh, by your spirit and this good word, help us now, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one 
to fight against Joshua and Israel. So Israel has entered the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan. They're now driving out the um, pagan peoples that are living in the land that are worshiping false gods and they fought a couple of battles and these kings have heard about it and they joined together to fight against Israel and Israel's God. Um, compare these kings' attitudes now with the attitudes that are ascribed to Canaanite kings in chapter 5 of Joshua where it reads, as soon as all the, king of the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So there's a contrast, right? In chapter 5, these kings were terrified of Israel. Now they're banding together to fight against Israel. And you have to say, what, what happened between chapter 5 and chapter 9? Well, one of the things that happened was that terrible defeat at the battle of Ai that Israel had because of Achan's sin. Perhaps that emboldened these kings. But for whatever reasons, these kings are emboldened now to fight against Israel. But not all of the Canaanites... Canaanites being all the people that live in the land of Canaan, the promise, promised land. Not all of the Canaanites choose that strategy. And so now enter the Gibeonites who do live in the land of Canaan. They're part of this big group of Canaanites. Listen to how they approach Israel, starting in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went out and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. Okay. Okay, wow. Okay, we have a deception on a remarkable level here, complete with costumes and props, right? Um, the Gibeonites, unlike the other kings in the Canaan land, in, in the land, don't choose to fight 
Israel, they sneakily try to broker peace. Okay? Um, the King James says it fabulously. They did work wilily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors. So the, the point, the whole point of their ruse, right, is that they're not from the promised land. They're from, they're from a far away place. Now, why would that matter? And again, you go back to Israel's instructions about how they're supposed to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 20, where Moses tells them, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So those are instructions for cities very far away. A different set of directives are for the cities that are nearby, that are in the land promised to them. So in verse 16, it continues, it says, In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, the cities that are near, you shall save nothing alive that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So for cities nearby that are in the promised land, um, there was to be no such offer of peace, only destruction because of their contagious, idolatrous, abominable worship practices, okay? So that's why the Gibeonites are pretending to be, we could say, from the kingdom of far, far away, with apologies to Shrek. So let's be clear about who the Gibeonites are, right? They are abominable, Baal-worshipping sneaks. That's who the Gibeonites are. Right? Um, so in verse 14, the men took some of the Gibeonite provisions, presumably to examine him, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. This is a big uh oh, right? It's never good to make a significant decision without consulting the Lord, right? Now, thankfully, that's not, that's something we would never do, right? We would never make big decision without consulting the Lord. But since lying is a sin and confession is good for your soul, why do we do it? Why, why would we do this? Why, why do we make decisions and don't consult the Lord? Um, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the dating websites, OkCupid, revealed how thousands of its users had answered one particular question uh, used in a survey to measure partner compatibility. It's just fascinating that they even asked this question on a dating website. The question is, are you a genius? Okay. And you click yes or no. About 40% of people clicked yes. Even better, almost 50% of men clicked yes. I am a genius. 
Um, to which in the article it says, um, so it's just two out of five think they are one in a thousand. Now, um, <laughs> now, now honestly, we, there's no like legal definition of genius, right? But places like Mensa that are the high IQ societies, you have to be at least in the like 98th, 99th percentile of IQ to get into places like Mensa, groups like Mensa. Um, so it's at least like one or two out of a hundred. They go on and they say, um, there's something seriously wrong when 50% of men think they are geniuses. And they, uh, they, they cite this survey, people on average tend to believe themselves to be above average. They say, this is a view that violates the simple tenets of mathematics, right? Um, but when asked to rate themselves, most people say they are more virtuous, more honorable, more capable, more competent, more talented, more compassionate, more understanding, and sympathetic than others. This effect um, has been labeled the better than average effect. Um, it's also called the above average effect, superiority bias, leniency error, and most descriptively, the Lake Wobegon effect. Named after Garrison Keillor's fictional Minnesota town where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. So, in a word, why don't we consult God uh, about things that matter? And the word is pride. Okay, that's why. Pride. To put it another way, we, we suffer from the delusion of self-sufficiency. We suffer from the, I got this mentality, I can do this. Um, so this comes up regularly in the scriptures, so we talk about it regularly here. And uh, one Sunday recently, we, I, I talked about this idea that self-sufficiency uh, dishonored God. And we had a couple of guests, two brothers, and they emailed me and they said, what is this? What is this thing that you speak of? Um, this self-sufficiency that's problematic because honestly, in America, self-sufficiency is a virtue, right? And so they said, uh, we heard you use a phrase in your sermon that day that confused us, ghastly self-reliance, I said. And my brother and I know you cannot work your way to salvation, so at first we interpreted it in that context. However, we're both still curious as to what you meant by that phrase. Is there more to it? And if so, what did we miss? A really, really insightful question. And my reply was, the idea behind it is that there is a kind of self-sufficiency that is God-independent. That is, where we think we don't need God and can manage our affairs, no matter how small, without express dependence on God. And the email comes back. Interesting. I've heard similar things before, but I'm not exactly sure what God-independent self-sufficiency looks like. Could you give me some examples? And so I said, in a desperate attempt to end this conversation, to put it succinctly, prayerlessness and thanklessness. Prayerlessness and thanklessness. I said these twins imply that we don't really need God's help. That's what prayerlessness says. And that he really didn't help us. And that's what thanklessness says. Prayerlessness and thanklessness. See, we have to train ourselves daily in the practices of prayerfulness and thankfulness as we go through our everyday routines so that when we face decisions that are of evident consequence to us, our reflex is 
It's pray. It's just what we do. We pray. And so, let me encourage you. When you face a major decision, one of the things that you should do is get away and pray. You should leave your normal trappings and seek God in prayer for an extended period of time. We often talk about a half day of prayer here. We, we practice that. We train people in that. Um, and so if you're thinking, should I marry this girl? Should I take this job? Should we buy this house? Should I go to this college? You don't want to be the person of which it is written, and they did not consult the Lord. Take some time, go away, and seek God about the decision that's before you. Our staff, our elders, our small group leaders are all trained in this practice, and they can help you. Okay? It sounds daunting, but it's not. Don't let it be said of you that you did not ask counsel from the Lord. Because that leads you to, often leads you to ethically befuddling places, and that's exactly what happened to Israel, right? So, verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chaphiria, Biroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. So they went ahead and they made a covenant with the Gibeonites, which is a very binding thing, especially when you make a covenant in the name of Yahweh, which they apparently did. And lo and behold, they find out the Gibeonites are not from the kingdom of far, far away. They're from the kingdom of three days away. And they find themselves just three days journey away from where these people live. These turn out, the Gibeonites turn out to be sneaky Canaanites in disguise. Okay, that's, that's what we're dealing with here. And so now they're on, really, truly on the horns of a dilemma. What are you going to do? Option one, you can um, honor the command of God and wipe them out and break the covenant you made in the name of the Lord. Option one. Option two, you can keep the covenant that you made in the name of the Lord and spare their lives and break God's explicit command. To wipe them out. All right. Moral of the story. Uh, consult God ahead of time next time. That's, that helps you not end up in these situations. Um, but, and along those lines, just a, just a little an, an aside. Uh, a really sobering verse from Second Chronicles about a king named Asa. Listen to what it says. In the 39th year of his reign... Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Nothing wrong with seeking help from physicians, but here clearly it's an either-or choice. And they chose something good and wise, 
over God. It's interesting in our passage to know what, what they call the Gibeonites back in verse 7. It says, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, they call the Gibeonites Hivites. And um, back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, where we're seeing these commands for warfare, it says, you shall devote these people to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites. Um, The Hivites, who are the Gibeonites, are specifically named as people that are to be destroyed. So they are really in a mess. And at this point, I'm going to do what all good Americans do. I'm going to take a survey. Um, How many of you think it would be a better choice to keep the Lord's command and break the covenant? Okay. How many of you think that's the better choice? All right. How many of you think the better choice is to break the Lord's command and keep the covenant? Okay. All right. The rest of you are absolutely clueless, right? You have no idea. No idea. You understand their quandary. Israel's divided about this. Read on with me, verse 18. The people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So the people, they want to keep the command and wipe them out. And the leaders who made the covenant want to keep the covenant and spare the Gibeonites' lives. So who's right? This is why you consult God on the front end of these things, right? Um, But I'm I'm gonna go with the leaders. Okay, I'm going to cast my lot with the leaders for an, a, a couple of reasons, three reasons. There's a principle. It's articulated in James chapter 2. It's real simple. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if I'm in a quandary and i got to pick sides, I'm going to fall off on the side of mercy instead of the side of judgment because of that, that principle. Secondly, turns out the leaders were right about this whole lest wrath be upon us if we break the covenant with the Gibeonites thing. Because later on, King Saul breaks the covenant with the Gibeonites and he kills some of them. And we read in 2 Samuel 21, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. David sought the face of the Lord and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So there's famine that comes on all the people because he broke this covenant with the Gibeonites and put some of them to death. And the last reason, is I've read the rest of the story. The leaders prevail, right? And they keep the covenant, so I'm going to go with them. And the In verse 21, the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood, drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Verse 22, Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? 
Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And so here we see Joshua's role uh, in the decision. And we see, interesting, the Gibeonites submission, full submission to Israel and thereby to their God for them to do whatever they wish with them. They are truly presenting themselves as servants, it seems. Verse 26, so, so Joshua did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So that's what they did. They decided to keep the covenant, made the Gibeonites servants at the altar of Israel's God. So, what does God think about all this? Um, Well, I don't think he really liked the whole idea that they didn't consult him. I don't think that went over big with God. But it's really beyond that, it's pretty hard to sort out in this passage uh, what God thinks of this hot mess that his people have gotten themselves into, right? God has been silent throughout chapter 9. You have to go all the way back into chapter 8, the battle with A, before you find any God's speech at all in this whole conundrum. Um, And for that reason, I think the best indicator of what God thinks about it is in the next chapter, chapter 10. We'll look at just a few of the first verses of chapter 10. So as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured A and had devoted it to destruction, doing to A and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than A and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And then the five kings of the Amorites, king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, king of Jarmuth, king of Lachish, king, king of Eglon, gathered their forces, went up with all their armies, and encamped against Gibeon, and made war against it. So, Clearly, these five uh, kings from the land of Canaan are operating on the assumption that the Gibeonites, Gibeon has gone over to the enemy, right? They are now aligned with Israel, and they attack Gibeon as a result. Next few verses. Um, The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us as, uh, quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So now Gibeon is under attack by these other kings. What do they do? They appeal to Joshua. And Joshua in turn 
is going to lead Israel to come to Israel's to the Gibeonites, Gibeonites aid, but not just Israel. Um, Yahweh is going to show up big time to aid the, the Gibeonites. Watch what happens in the next few verses. So Joshua, in response to their plea, went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Okay, So, over and over again, we see, verse 8, the Lord is leading this battle. Verse 10, the Lord causes the kings to panic. Verse 11, if there's any doubt who gets the cred for the victory, the Lord throws hailstones down from heaven and wipes them out. Okay. If you want to read the following verses, you'll find that the Lord made the day longer. We'll talk about that next week. That'll give me a little more time to figure out what that was about. Um, The Lord made the day longer just so they could finish the battle and rescue the Gibeonites. God is for the Gibeonites here without question, right? He is rescuing them. But again... Some of you may be thinking, but they lied. Liar, liar. You got it. You know the drill. And they did. Right. No mistake about it. The Gibeonites are abominable, idolatrous, lying little sneaks, as we've said. Um, They resemble college students. Let me, uh, let me explain. Um, author uh, Dan O'Reilly writes um, a, a book. In John, it's about honesty, and John Ortberg expounds on it. He says that O'Reilly's book um, clearly gives empirical verification for what you and I know happens all the time. He said, here's a tiny example uh, that I hope you cannot relate to. He says, O'Reilly says in his book, Over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are due. Guess which relative most often dies? Grandma. He says, I am not making this stuff up. There's another research study that has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 more times likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are even at higher risk. (laughs) Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens on our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPAs. 
He says, the moral is, if you are a grandparent, do not let your children go to college. <laughs> it could kill you, right? The Gibeonites were liars. They were lying, idolatrous, abominable little sneaks. And this is so interesting. When in their kind of backhanded, deceitful way, they seek the mercy of God from God's people, God sovereignly grants it to them. And I think there's some more support for this. We'll get to it in chapter 11. In verse 15, we read this endorsement of Joshua. It says, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And this affirmation of Joshua right on the heels of this decision to grant mercy to the Gibeonites and then to rescue the Gibeonites in this military action, um, I think it implies God's endorsement of, of Joshua's choice. Um, if you drop down to verse 19 and 20 there, it says, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. It says they took all the rest of them in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And so it, it implies to me that the Lord who grants mercy and who hardens hearts granted mercy to the Gibeonites, uh, this gracious exception in the midst of a holy war, we see God giving grace, giving mercy to the undeserving. And you know, uh, even their slavery, which is called a curse, seems to turn out to be a blessing to them. As Professor Robert Hubbard writes in his commentary, the Gibeonites performed menial tasks at a prestigious site. They were, they were cutting wood and drawing water for the altar of the Lord. Certainly a vocation both they and Israel regard as an honor. It makes me think of Psalm 84 that says to the Lord, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper, a servant in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And Dr. Hubbard continues saying that uh, the Gibeonites' appeal to make a covenant of peace with Israel marks a call for mercy, consciously or unconsciously, an appeal to the character of Yahweh as good and right and merciful. The entire episode provides an opportunity for Yahweh to demonstrate whether or not his mercy might somehow extend to non-Israelites, and thank God it does, right? It, it comes to people who are far from God. And it's an interesting thing to kind of trace the Gibeonites out through the rest of the Old Testament. You find things like this. Um, they became servants, as was required of them. They became servants at the tabernacle, just as Joshua had commanded. Gibeon, their city, becomes a priestly city. The Ark of the Covenant stayed at Gibeon often in the days of David and Solomon. At least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. Um, God spoke to King Solomon at Gibeon. Gibeonites were among those who were rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem with Nehemiah. And Prof. Hubbard writes again, 
they, the Gibeonites, appear to have been fully assimilated among the Jews, as much believers in Israel's God as was Rahab or other foreign converts, and as much the recipients of God's grace. So the good news is that the, the story, this befuddling story of the Gibeonites, it's a story of grace for the undeserving, for people who are farthest from God. There's grace. There's grace. What does all this mean for you and me? Um, well, it means there's grace enough for our friends who seem to be really, really far from God. Okay? Um, it's interesting, Professor William Ford writes that in Joshua we have just two prominent examples of Canaanites turning to Israel, coming to Israel and seeking to side with them and their God. Rahab and the Gibeonites. And he says both are accepted. And as the only examples, he says, we'll, we'll go further and say that in the book of Joshua, any Canaanite under the sentence of destruction who comes to Israel and Yahweh is accepted. No matter how they come, including deception, no Canaanite is rejected by Yahweh and Israel is not punished for swearing an oath with any Canaanite. Then he says outsiders can become insiders. By grace, by God's all-sufficient mercy, all-sufficient for us all. So you should tell your friends who think that they could never come to church, they could never come to God because they just made too many bad choices. You should tell them they don't have to clean up first. Okay? I don't know about you guys, but at my house these days, uh, there's a whole lot of this going on the TV. It used to be, the, it's the NFL draft, and it used to be how they picked their teams for next year, the, the college players coming up. Now, it's like a full media event that goes on for days, right? And uh, it's elaborate, and they're choosing, and, and their future of their teams ride on how well they pick their players. So these guys have been poked and prodded and tested. They've tested their vertical, their broad jump, their 40 time. They've run shuttles. They've assessed their character. They scored their leadership ability. Only the best of the best are chosen to compete in the NFL. That's what the draft is about. They're picking the best of the best. And you, know, you, you need to let your friends know that God does not use a draft system. There are no combines. There are no tryouts. There are no tests. He gives grace to the undeserving, like the Gibeonites, like the church. Okay? <laughs> this is a really cool description of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it, it looks a lot like us, probably. Right? It goes like this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, right? <laughs> yeah. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I don't know if we have any nobility in our midst. I don't think so. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose us. Okay? Because he's a merciful God. What does this mean for us? This grace that's given the Gibeonites, even though they're a bunch of idolatrous little sneaks, um, 
It means if you've got a family member who's far, far from God, there's enough grace for them. Don't give up on them. There's enough grace for our friends. And that grace sure better shape the way we welcome people into our world, right? Into our homes and into this place. Um, Pastor uh, Scott Sauls tells this story about an anonymous uh, nursery worker who bumped into a first-time visitor at their church. The visitor's name was Janet. She had dropped off her two boys in the nursery, and this is how he describes what happened. After the service, while Janet was waiting in the nursery line to retrieve her boys, one of the nursery workers quietly approached her and said that there had been some issues. Both of her boys had picked fights with other children. Also, one of her boys had broken several of the toys that belonged to the church. And in front of a room filled with other children and their parents, Janet scolded the boys and then screamed in a bellowing voice something that only has four letters in it. Deeply ashamed, feeling like a failure, Janet got her boys, skulked out of the building, and everybody thought, no doubt, we're never going to see her again. But this unnamed nursery volunteer called the church office that Monday and asked if she could check the visitor notebook to see if Janet had left her contact information, and in fact, she had. And so... Pastor says, I gave the nursery worker Janet's address, and unbeknownst to me, she sent Janet a note. And the note read something like this. Dear Janet, I'm so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about that little exchange when you picked them up from the nursery, let's just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. This is genius, by the way. I am really drawn to honesty, And you are clearly an honest person. I hope we can become friends, love the unnamed nursery worker. He says that the nursery worker and Janet did in fact become friends. And Janet came back the next Sunday. And the Sunday after that. And the Sunday after that. And eventually, he says, Janet, who at the time of her visit was a recovering heroin addict, um, became the nursery director for their church. Of all things. So when we see God's grace poured out on Gibeonites, we sure better pour it out on anybody who walks in these doors. No matter how different they are from from you or from me. Or no matter how far they appear that they might be from God. And who knows? You know, the more different they are, the more you ought to pursue them and love them and greet them. Because they sure don't feel welcome based on how they look. They need you to give them grace that even rescues Gibeonites. And if they don't act right or behave right, um, you know, that's, that's okay. You don't either, Right? The church is to be a place of grace because, contrary to what Richard Dawkins says, both in the Old Testament and the New, our God is a God who gives undeserved grace. 
Professor Hubbard points out, Jesus himself once confronted a non-Israelite outsider, a Canaanite woman. Maybe you remember that encounter. Matthew 15, she sought his mercy, and he says, as Joshua extended mercy to the Gibeonites, so Jesus did to the Canaanite woman. And he says, and good, good soldiers of the cross always strive to put Jesus' beatitude into practice. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? So, Father, forgive us. When we're thinking right, we know that in our own minds, we are the greatest recipients of undeserved favor that we know. And yet, and yet we sometimes make other people feel like they have to deserve it. They have to earn it. They have to be good first. They have to clean up before they'd be welcomed by your people and before you would show them grace. And uh, forgive us for that. And Lord, in this room right now, there are people who are wondering if they're good enough. And of course they're not. None of us are. But what we're really wondering is, are you gracious enough? And today we hear in the story, you are. And so help us to welcome it personally, to extend it lavishly to the people who seem the very farthest away from you because your grace even reaches there. And so this we pray in the matchless name of Jesus, our King, whom we follow and we serve. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's declare that we follow a gracious, loving God. Let's declare that together.